The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Nick Nanavati and the Art of War coaches. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Art of War podcast. I'm your host, Nick Nanavati, and I'm joined today from someone all the way from the land down under once more. We have the winner of the Dice Arcade GT, and now just recently the Gladiator Teams event as well. Two first place finishes and a member of Team Australia, Alex and Glazos. Alex, how are you doing? Really good, thanks, Nick. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm super excited to talk with you today because we're going to go for a wild ride and talk about an army I know basically nothing about. It's probably the faction I know least about in all of 40k, and we haven't had it on the show in so long. We're going to talk about the Adeptus Mechanicus. Alex, you're known in Australia uh, as one of the top players who uses kind of underrated, underpowered factions. You, you really made Salamanders work in a time where Marines were not very popular. You're, you're obviously making Admech work at phenomenal levels. We're going to unpack that today. And, you know, you were making Death Car work, I heard. I'm super excited about all this. Before we get into it, I just want to remind everybody, this is part one of a two-part show. In part one, we're going to go over Alex, meet him as a player, his philosophy about the game, how he makes it work with Admech and Death Guard and Salamanders and all that schnaz, how he's a member of Team Australia. And then in part two, for our patrons, you can subscribe on AOW40K.com. You'll get access to all of the wonderful meanderings about how this Admech list actually works, its matchups, its tactics, how Alex puts it on the table, moves it around and uses it. If that sounds like it's something you're interested in or interested in fighting against maybe the new admic meta join us in part two all right alex let's let's get into it talk to me about yourself as a 40k player how did you get into this i actually got into it uh right before the first batch of covid so i haven't been playing for for too long but i had a friend who played and we actually started playing uh, age of sigma to start with just very casual looking at 500 point games didn't really expand on too much from there uh, in between the, the loop, I, I always thought that, you know, 40K was lame. And I thought, no, the sci-fi part doesn't uh, appeal to me. Lo and behold, I found Admech. And the Adeptus Mechanicus style, lore, everything kind of just meshed with me well. I thought they were great. I thought that they kind of matched more of the sci-fi and, and Grimnut setting than some other factions or, as an example, you know, Ultramarines and, and things like that. That was the post-child. So I got into Admech by doing that and... Oh, I had to spend a lot of money because Admech is an expensive army. But that was really what got me started. Then I started playing some casual games at a local store, then just went straight into tournaments. You know, after my second tournament, I actually went to uh, the Victorian Team Championships. And I, I can't remember if this is right, but I might have actually had a stream game versus Liam Hackett in my second tournament ever because my team unfortunately was doing very well. And back then I was running a Lucius, this is eighth ed uh, book during ninth, but I was running a Lucius uh, brigade. So I had 12 units of uh, five Vanguard with uh, double plasma reach and just running around the board with plus one involved. And in the end, uh, GW gave us, you know, vet cohort, which was the five up involved anyway. And they gave us that now. So I guess I was, maybe slightly ahead of the curve, <laughs> but it was a, uh, it was a blast. And since then I've just enjoyed it and, you know, I've really tried to keep the community going here and, and do my part and just have positive games. I think, you know, 95%, if not more of my matches have just been an absolute pleasure. So that's what keeps me here. 
That's awesome. Yeah, we love the sportsmanship aspect. And just, you know, that's that's why we play it. One of the things you just said in your story about how you went to your first tournament, your second tournament ever, the Victorian teams, and you played Liam Hackett, you are now on a team with Liam Hackett representing your country. Yeah. Like, that's so awesome. So there's a lot yeah. to unpack here. How did you, we, we kind of jumped a lot of steps in a player's natural progression through the hobby. You were like, all right, I'm going to play Warhammer. Admech, here we go. You know, most expensive, weirdest army, not very popular. You know, the, what's up my speed? I'll, I'll, I'll get to go to a local tournament. Cool. I enjoyed that. You know, a lot of people are a little fearful before the first tournament, but you jumped right in. And you were like, okay, that was cool. Let's get on a plane and, and fly for Victorian teams against the Like, what, what is that progression? Did we skip some steps? Uh, not really. It's really weird. But I mean, I think there's obviously a copious amount of group chats that you, you get involved into. And, you know, oh God, my, my group chat right now at this current state probably goes through probably about 5,000 messages a day. Um, but back then it was maybe closer to a couple of hundred. Um, but I was just eager and I thought it was fun. And, you know, it was great. You know, had an amazing community, had a, a great set of people that wanted to uh, take me on this journey. And I think, you know, in between that whole period where we had, you know, obviously COVID delays and everything else, you know, I just wanted to have that escape and I wanted to have that journey. So it worked out amazingly well. And yeah, great that the outlet was 40K because I've made that, you know, I'll, you know, my, my go-to hobby uh, after that. Yeah, that's super awesome. Well, okay. How, how come you are drawn to these kind of offbeat factions, you know, Admech specifically, but then I know you, you've got some other weird stuff going on in those brains. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, look, even, even though I play Admech, which is a weirder faction and, and not so often played, I then also try to make some a bit off-kilter lists. And when people will say, hey, that's terrible when I post it, and then a week later they go, that's genius. <laughs> um, it's hard to be a successful snowflake. I mean, a lot of people attempt it. It's a popular approach to the yeah. game. Like, I'm going to innovate the newest, hottest thing with the faction that sucks. And you know, very, very few people, if any, ever succeed with it. So it's pretty impressive. So I'm I'm very much an advocate right now that uh, the Adeptus Mechanicus probably doesn't need any more buffs. Uh, I can understand there's some things, there's nuances that they could make the, the faction easier to play. I don't necessarily think that means that they need to get buffs to, to make it easier to play. So I think that's where the core issue is right now with Admech. So one, one thing that's really driving me to get results is to really simplify the lists and, and design and, and show that having simple lists... Uh, allows you actually more flexibility to make more technical plays because that's all you have to really focus on. So my most recent list, you know, was a really good example of that. And, you know, I'm not really a huge fan of the uh, 20 minute command phase things or anything like that. So I really love trying to find hidden gems uh, within factions that I love. Salamanders was very easy. You just make a fluffy army, which is just flamers, melters, thunder hammers only, and all of a sudden you have a really good list. Um, but then utilizing the their secondary, uh, sorry, their stratagem, uh, born protectors, you there's seven different ways you can actually use that. Um, I remember I started using them, and lo and behold, Tyranids just came up into the meta, and having a fly rent, you know, go in, destroy something, then fly out was obviously the worst thing uh, possible. But with Born Protectors, you can overwatch that fly run, then get into combat with it, and usually they cannot deal with 10 aggressors. So, you know, five that they charge and five that are in there. So it actually stops them from running away, and then you can usually just get in a really efficient trade, especially when the fly run is expected to get, you know, three or four turns worth of value. So, <clears throat> but not only that, you know, 
melters. You know, if I, if, you know, showing people that if you just keep yourself within 12 inch range of, you know, your whole army, kind of like your own synapse, if an enemy charges something in the front line and their back line is staying 20, what is it? It's 29 inches away from your uh, eradicators, just in case you get like a, a good, you know, advanced roll, or if you're, you know, plus range, um, range uh, you actually just 2d6 heroic them up. You don't care about the overwatch, but you just move them forward so that way you can actually shoot their backline next turn. So it was very kind of weird elder jank, and I'd, I'd love to talk more about salamanders and, and different plays that you can make with them in the future. But, yeah, yeah. I just I just love finding these weird things and going, hey, this is cool, this is different. This allows me to use the movement phase not just in my turn but in other people's turns. That's uh, something that I'm really happy with. I love what you just said. This allows me to use my movement phase not just in my turns but in other people's turns. And I think... You know, your answer in and of itself really exemplified that you, you're you trying to play a very technical game of 40K where you're moving and you're micro-moving and you're, you're trying to pile in and consolidate and take advantage of whatever situations your, your opponent arises. You don't have to... You can do that with any faction, basically. So what is it about, say, Salamanders? And, you know, they have the Born Hero strategy like you just got into, but Admech, you know, they're not considered a, a specifically... Um, mobile faction designed to get in combat and manipulate those technical aspects in it when my brutish understanding of admic is basically 20 minute command phase i don't understand they shoot me really hard and then the guys with the chopsticks kill me in combat so you know that's pretty much all i got where does the technical aspects come in uh yeah look admic's a bit of a funny one i think technically the technical assets are very minor things um and then my current list is really just a stat check on people. So uh, I'm running 14 chickens, which is a lot. Um, Cockadoodle do, I'm coming for you, I guess. I guess. But uh, it's, um, I push forward. You have something that you have to deal with. But while you're dealing with all these kind of annoying threats, so your horses, your dragoons, your balustari that are getting angles, at the same time, I actually have two dune riders that are just staging inside, inside of ruins, ready for the following turn where I'm, plus three inches to my movement and 3d6 charge remove the lowest. That makes Rust Stalkers very, very efficient because there's a 14-inch, you know, movement outside of the transport and then a 3d6 charge remove the lowest to get into combat. And they usually will help me with wrapping techniques and everything else. And doing those minor things like we've mentioned, uh, you know, as with Pylons Consolidates to, to get extra movement as well and really kind of set the tone. And lately, I'll, I'll be honest, most of my CP has been on either rerolling charges or you know, doing CP interrupts because my, while my units are good, they're, they're not really cheap. You know, a 10 man unit of rush stalkers, it can't really compare to two units of Zephyr, um, as an example. So yeah, it, it's just, I think you have to kind of detach yourself from the army and how its core functionality was built and then realize that there's, there's other ways to play it. And I, I really find Admech right now is a really good mid-board pressure list, and you can really kind of disrupt people if they get a little bit too close. So I've been I've been having a lot of fun with that, especially as the meta right now. I think the meta does have a lot of armies that are really good at playing in the middle. So it works out actually that Admech can counter them to a degree. So a lot of things that you said there really struck out to me, one of which is... Just how you view Admech as a faction. It's, you know, it challenges kind of the, the notion of how Admech play, and it really focuses them on being a board control army instead of like a gun line that countercharges you or something like that. And I want to 
kind of understand you as a player a little more, and then we'll get very specific into AdMech and your view on them. Um, how do you, I guess, see what's not right there on the surface level or, or filter out all the internet preconceived notions and really look at it with a clear scope and, an, and a unique viewpoint to you know, manufacture value where a lot of people don't see any? Yeah, good question. I think a lot of people get caught up in looking at data and checking math and quantifying, you know, if this happens, this this is my result. And I don't think that's typically wrong. I, I think it's actually valuable to do that and, and have that information on hand, but I don't think you should utilise that information purely on a list-building perspective. Um, the, the first thing you should always check is work out what ideal secondaries you want to actually take and then develop a list from there. Now, AdMec, the, the, way, the issue that AdMec has is obviously we don't have any kind of passive secondaries obviously there's hidden archive vault but the enemy gets to pick where that you know is so generally it's a i like to think of it as quite an active secondary um but if you look at just that secondary for an example you know the enemy is picking it you know that you have to make it towards the enemy's backline could you just remind uh, us how, how this secondary works yeah sure sure so the way hidden uh, archive vault works is that the opponent picks a second uh, sorry an objective that is outside of their deployment zone they're obviously never going to pick your own deployment zone um, objective. But if you, in your turn, um, if you control that objective, you get five points. And it is player turn now. It has changed from battle round. So it is a very good secondary. However, the immediate problem you can see is that gunline admec don't really get to that part of the board. And we don't really have a lot of um, OPSEC either, aside from our troops um, and the troops Generally, either unless you're running Catafronts, aren't the most you know durable unit. And if you're running Catafronts, they're not the most mobile unit. Crossing the board, so yeah, yeah. So you already see this problem, right? We have a secondary design that doesn't work in line with the core structure of Admec. But if you're designing your army based on the actual secondaries, it's a lot easier to to work out how do you make this work. You know, and the answer is you know dragoons, rust stalkers, Cerberus raiders, infiltrators. Um, sulfur hounds, you know, these things are, you know, really the key that will allow you to actually get the value there. So if you reverse engineer it, you can actually work it out. And then, you know, majority of my games, when I when I can, I'll try to also use um, eradication of flesh. And I break that one down and, I, and I'll work it out. How does that one work? Well, I need my vehicle units to destroy more units than the enemy destroys my vehicle units. And the keyword is units, not models. So that preference is bricks. And I'm running, you know, four-man uh, Dragoons at times or three-mans or four-man uh, Alistari, and they're a lot harder to shift. And if they're getting me that destruction each turn, that's great. But then more importantly, that's already worked out my target priority for the game because if I take out the opponent's anti-tank delivery straight away at the start of the game, I can reliably get those four VP a turn. So I worked that out, reverse engineer, build the list, make sure that I can actually counter that, make sure I have the resources to or, or the, the setup to actually be hypermobile and get those angles deployed correctly so that way I, I just take them out. And if I can take that part of the army out, not only does my secondary get better, my units survive. And then lastly, it means that the output that I get in return for the cost that I actually put down on the field works out better. So instead of me looking at math on a purely turn-by-turn perspective and then getting hit by a trade and then losing, this works out a lot more in my favour. And that's why I'm using, you know, Laz Cannon, uh, 
chickens instead of water cannon ones because usually the main threats uh, I need to deal with are usually vehicles and monsters. So, yeah. So it's what you said there as well. It kind of makes me feel like you're viewing it almost like a chess match where instead of going yeah. for, you know, turn by turn value, chase the immediate points right in front of you, I'm going to go contest the primary. And obviously you're playing that, you're still playing 40K. But instead of letting that dictate the strategy to you, to what the, at which you make your decisions at list building, last cannons versus auto cannons, including the large units of iron striders, and then down to your usage, like deploy at a place where I can go get an angle, move move as far as iron striders move, we'll get into that, um, to see the, the anti-tank unit behind a wall, kill it, and your iron striders can function for the next four or five turns without trading. It's a different kind of game. So... Mm-hmm. You started off following secondaries as your logical plan, and that makes sense. I think a lot of strong players, a lot of good people, uh, list builders, just you know follow the points. But when it's not obvious or you don't have the the, the go to secondary like your Admech um, ancient machineries, it's not something you you can really just accomplish. You have to go out of your way for. Why do you think that's better to break your army's core identity and create this aggressive style board control Admech instead of just play? To your natural strengths and figure out points that way. Good question. I think if you look at Admech pragmatically, we are a weaker faction, and we cannot operate the same way as the Democrats do in utilizing kind of more of the the base secondaries in the book. You know that are the global to to all factions, and then just surviving. We don't have that you know set design or anything like that. We do have to kind of go out of our shell and work out what will work best for on a scoring perspective because if we don't do that, I think, you know, maybe, maybe that's why some of the results are so low. You know, we had a 28% win rate this weekend, uh, 32% uh, the previous weekend. And I think part of that is because we, we're we set in this weird kind of limbo period where we do need to actually go out and and really test things. You know, my, my admin list right now are 70% melee. Really? And I just have some, yeah. And I identified just, as a shooting army, like just earlier this yeah. month. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. I do have some really strong shooting capabilities. Um, it, so in points value, it's probably 30, I think it's 33% of my army is, you know, really dedicated shooting. The rest is uh, hybrid or melee. Mm-hmm. And then all of your list choices from there kind of flow through <laughs> that, and it's more like a different way of viewing the same problem or same army. Yeah, and I think, you know, when ARCs came out, a lot of people were saying, hey, this is going to be a really strong meta for shooting armies and they're not wrong you know you have your iron hands your dark angels even um and gene stillers you know without aoc are very very scary um their melee is arguably just as scary but their shooting right now is insane amounts of volume uh all of these are very valid uh, however you know you shouldn't look at that and then just associate what well, admec needs to remain in their identity because it doesn't actually work for on a scoring perspective mm-hmm. so I guess a lot of problems people encounter when you are finding yourself in a scoring deficit, right? Like you're not playing an army like custodians who can just sit there and score their points by standing on objectives or, you know, the, the armies that score their points like that. You basically have to overturn their their passive victory by becoming an active faction and going out mm-hmm. and disrupting their score, overscoring on your secondaries and really beating them at 40k. That's a hard hill to climb. And a big way armies kind of try to climb it is by having absurdly good stats, you know, like terminators with their just 5,000 yeah. storm shields or whatever it might be, you know, just like I have the yeah. path to get through this. And I'd make don't really strike me as a stat check style army where you can just run up the flank and 
no, you can't deal with this. Uh huh. You're dead. It, you know, you're going to get killed trying to do that. So how do you actually maneuver your army effectively against all of the the, the offense that 40k brings today? It's uh, it's interesting. I, I kind of agree and disagree about the stat check portion because you can. I agree. Look, I mean, when you compare them to. Like you said, the 33-point Terminators with Storm Shields and Thunder Hammers, we, we definitely are in the Statue Army. Or looking at, you know, the, the fabled, you know, 20 Custodian Warden list, or even previously a Statue Army would have been the, the Dreadnought uh, and Calidus list that um, uh, that Custodes would run. But um, with Admech, you can still kind of stat check. If you, because of our, we do have you know, initial mobility. I wouldn't say that we have, you know, ongoing mobility, but, you know, being able to pop raiment of the Technomata on a Ballastari unit and then auto advance six means that you're moving 16 inches and then you can get an angle to shoot, uh, which is really, really potent. And if you're an aggressor, that's a 19 inch move. Uh, you can pop Magi on another one. So it's six inch move plus, you know, two uh, or six inch advance plus two, which is really good as well when you're doing the roll. So you, you can be quite mobile there. Uh, if you do eliminate some of the initial perceived threats, realistically, if you're running now an army that has majority T6 on the field, that even Thunderhammers, when they come into you, you can ignore AP 1 and 2. It is, It can be a stat check. Um, it's just around target priority, and I think that's the most important thing that AdMech has to deal with. And in list design, you need to work out what you feel will be in, in meta how you feel you can actually disrupt those portions of, uh, you know, the threats to, say, your vehicles, your T6 bodies and everything else. And if you've removed that threat adequately enough, even if they're taking out half of your T6 bodies before you get to that stage, the other half of your T6 bodies are just going to run free the rest of the game because the the, the opponent actually can't stack check them. This is uh, really indicative, I guess, how Admech makes sense to play, kind of in like a fluff lore narrative perspective, you know, get your protocols, eradicate, and do it in procedural order. And it's kind of cool to see the strategy applied like that. Not all of the the oddball factions that you kind of make work apply the strategy like this. Or maybe they do, and I'm offbeat here. I mean, it's your, your answer. But how do, you, how do you pilot different factions like that? Yeah, good question. I think I've, I've had to just, obviously, never I never compare factions. Okay, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, starting with that, you'll, you'll get yourself in a rabbit hole, and then you'll, you're trying to make things work that you could in one faction, and you won't be able to do it. So, you know, let's just talk three factions as an example. Adeptus Mechanicus, Death Guard, and Salamanders all play vastly differently. You might say, hey, maybe Salamanders and Death Guard operate the most similar. It's pretty wrong. <laughs> um, the the similarity is you know, that there's a lot of three, two wound models that are durable and yeah. slow, right? So that's how you draw that comparison. Yeah, but uh, it's it's odd because, you know, Salamanders also then have, you know, 18-inch uh, land speeders that you can utilize who push forward. And then as long as you keep them within 12 again, you can keep getting more movement with your aggressors. So if an enemy charges you, you move up your 2d6. On average, that's seven uh, on the dice roll. So you've moved now seven inches in the opponent's turn. You probably moved five inches your turn. So you're already at 12-inch movement. Then in your turn, you're going to move another five. So you're at 17, and then you're charging something. So it's it's a bit crazy. Um, the way it works is you you really kind of spread the board and you have just units kind of everywhere, one, two, three, just everywhere on the board. And you've got this amazing synergy. You've got double overwatch. You have all these other things. And, uh, you know, I usually try and run successes as well. So I have um, tactical withdrawal. So while you have done these heroic interventions, even if you don't wipe out the opponent unit, um, you can fall back and then charge something else. 
but more importantly, you're kind of falling forward, like going further, closer to the opponent in their backline, and then charging their backline. So the, the army can be scary. I know that's a diff- very different way to play it, um, but it's the way that I like to play it. Um, but if you look at Death Guard, you know that was the challenge given to me by my uh, gaming group because they they know how much I love movement chank and Death Guard's traditionally not a movement chank army. I am running the ferryman there, uh, giving myself an extra solid one-inch movement. But more importantly, I'm utilizing some of my faster units to slingshot and kind of dictate where the opponent will be uh, by having a giant aura where I halve all their movement. So that's the way I'm you know, utilizing that. Uh, what that allows is actually better predictions for what you need to do for your future turns because it's easier to predict where your opponent will be landing their units. And from that, you can actually already stage, set up, generate angles, whatever you may need to do for your future turns while being relatively safe behind everyone. So that's that's kind of the way I'm adopting Death Guard right now. And it's a bit complex. There's a lot more to it. But uh, I'm trying to find the commonalities between these three different factions. And basically, to sum it up, the, the admin we've gone through in detail, they play eradicating very specific anti-tank targets and then kind of board controlling from there. Salamanders, you say you approach the game by creating these like triangular layers where it's very hard to charge you, um, basically mm-hmm. because you have the, the born protectors rule. Uh, we don't need to get too nitty gritty into this moment right mm-hmm. now about how that works. And then uh, through that, you can, again, do board control by having these areas of the board that are difficult to charge and then very punishing if you screw up tactically. And then... Same thing with Death Guard, you know, you're having movements so that you can two turns down the road, three turns down the road, really pin them in, figure out where they are. Understand, I, I assume, like, if they're only moving four inches instead of eight inches, they're not going to be able to get line of sight of me if I move to this spot. So, you know, that's how you can kind of traverse the field a little bit more safely. There's a lot of depth to the tactics that you're using here, but they all, to me, seem a little predicated on my opponent making the critical mistake of giving you something to charge to sneak up the table with 2d6 inches, plus three on a pile and plus three on a consolidate, a weird heroic intervention. There's a lot of, like, if my opponent just stays away from me, scores a lot of passive points and shoots me, like, is there outplay for you with this kind of hope they screw up so I can take very good tactical advantage strategy? There is a little bit. I mean, with my Salamanders list, I also have uh, an Ancient so if you do shoot me, I generally shoot you back. There, there's an issue of potentially outranging me. However, that's why I have the speeders in the list as well to get those initial angles and disrupt some of their their shooting threats. And then if it's a melee fight, I'm happy. Uh, for Admech, uh, it's a bit more different. You know, there's some ways that you can really disrupt Admech. The easiest way is by just turning off their efficiency in in stats. So. Uh, as an example, turning off rerolls, giving transhuman, things like that really, really hurt our mech. And for Death Guard right now, obviously, everyone knows how much they hate mortal wounds. <laughs> it's uh, oh, yeah. it's a bit nuts. <laughs> and and uh, if you can get rid of their characters, it's very scary. Okay. So I get what you're saying in terms of the general approach to the game. How would you classify your actual play style? Like if you could basically teach other people how you play 40k and they can learn from you, what would you describe it as? Realistically, I look at it not in the sense of being a dice game. I am notoriously known for being terrible at rolling dice. I am shocking. (laughs) Half the time, you know, I can fail four-inch charges with a 3d6. Uh, The other day, I had a unit of Rust Stalkers only to take out two infiltrators, um, two primaries infiltrators, which was 
absolutely shocking and swung the, the game by about 12 points in just that turn alone. <laughs> so I'm really bad at that. But what I think is I, if I try to detach myself and really look at it more on a, a, for lack of a better word, just a board control, you know, board in front of me, where do I need to go to get value? Where do I need to go to score points? You know, how do I do this? And it just works out a lot better for me. I mean, obviously I'm, I feel that I roll terribly. Sometimes I roll good. Sure. That's fine. But the thing that I'm always in control of is movement. That's a set value. You understand how it works and that's something you can accurately forward plan throughout the game. So if you start looking, you know, for me, I generally try to look up to turn three ahead at deployment. So if I can work out my turn one, my turn two, my turn three during deployment, then I'm feeling really comfortable with what will happen. And, you know, conveniently, that's what happened in my final game at Dice. You know, it was a really good example because I mentioned to him at the end of my turn one, this is what I'm doing next turn. This is where I can go. I might mark Dice for everything. And I go, there is absolutely no way I get 100 points, not get 100 points this game. And we just, yeah, that was that because I've worked out and planned everything. Uh, so put the units down correctly where they need to be at deployment, move the right movement, staged where I needed to stage so that way I could do my future things for turn two and then again for turn three uh, afterwards. So for me, it's that. It's all about pre-planning measurement. Um, you get better at it as time goes on. You know, the other day I also accurately predicted where every single – it was crazy. It was like bang on. Every single uh, – what do you call it? Blip that Gene Siller unit had. I went first. I predicted where every single unit would be and, and what unit was in each blip. Uh, and then he drops down and it was. And because of that, I was able to really kind of control that game. That's a level of understanding of 40K that most people <laughs> simply don't even know where to get started on, right? Like, yeah. Like, I mean, talking about your Gene Circle specific example, like, well, Myself as like a professional player, I see my opponent with a Gene Stealer Cult army, and they're putting like ten blips down. I'll ask them, "What's in reserve? What's in on tank?" And you know, on, or whatever. After that, I'll look for like a concentration of blips, one off blip, whatever, something weird they could do with it. And after that, I'm playing my game. And largely speaking, and this is where I think you and I differ, Alex. Which is, I just, there's so many things I want to talk to you about here. Um, before I get sidetracked with that, the Gene Stealer Cult, like. That's an example of like who thinks of that. And then, you know, you said you were able to plan until turn three and call with accuracy what the game is going to be. Now, that's definitely a skill that, that very skilled players have, you know, being able to kind of read the ebbs and flows of the game and, and come up with what will happen. What is your process for figuring that out? I'll be honest, the main thing is practice, practice, practice. But it's also, I think, exposure. Now, I think where a lot of people, you know, who want, you know, who are competitive, we should say, because they are competitive, but they want to get to the next level. Um, the, the best way is, you know, that I learned was exposure by playing other better players. So playing versus Liam Hackett, you know, Simon Wojcik, Eric Lathuris, you know, these guys are amazing. And I'm, I'm lucky that I, I have really strong players here in Australia that I can leverage to and, and play with. And that's helped me become a better player. Um, it's now at the point now where I, I guess I can show others how to do that, you know, those strategies. You know, I've recently been coaching someone on Emperor's uh, children and I've made a absolutely gnarly, you know, melee listen, showing him the extra little intricacies of the movement, the pilot, the consolidate, the wrapping and everything like that. 
things that now he's really good at, but he wouldn't have known without exposure. And that's the same thing with forward planning and predicting the game. Once you actually start putting yourself in that headspace, a space, it's a lot easier. It's sometimes harder. I mean, I know we're talking about it here on this um, this pod, but I think people will hear it. They probably wouldn't put it into practice yet. They might try it once or twice, but they won't make it a, they won't actually be in that mindset to actually do it accurately. But I think with coaching, you can actually get to that stage, which is really important. I think once you do it, you, you feel a lot better. You also finish your games quicker. So if you're having issues with time, this is a really good way to, you know, to, uh, prevent that. And yeah, just be better at the game. And if you're predicting things, even if you're wrong later on, you start learning by doing that. Um, you're never going to really be getting into a point as well then when you get surprised because you've just gotten yourself to a point where you kind of understand how the opponent should be playing, uh, what they want to do to maximize their points, and then what you want to do to either disrupt that or score more than them. I couldn't agree more with the... It's like a lot of players wouldn't know how to solve this thing. Um, a lot of, like I've been doing professional 40K coaching for four years now, and... So much of it is you don't know what you don't know when you're at a certain mm-hmm. until you reach a certain level of understanding about 40k, and then having someone basically holding your hand, spoon feeding you the right questions to ask yourself and the right way to analyze your games and your moves and all that that skyrockets your speed to get better. And what a lovely segue, Alex. Um, you are now our our newest art of war coach. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when by the time this episode airs, uh, hopefully if not now, then in a day or two from now, we will be able to have you'll be able to have Alex uh, as your personal code for 40k. So you can sign up for that as theartofwar40k.com. If a personal and a premium, two different packages, you get access to the war room. Uh, it's a really amazing thing, Alex. You know you can hear him talk. He's obviously very good at this game. Uh, I'm really excited for um, the next part of this discussion a little bit. Not quite part two time yet, but I want to ask you one more question before we get on in there. You and I both approach the game pretty similarly from what I can gather in that we both value movement and things we can control. We're trying to mitigate dice, you know, play it as much as, as ahead of the game as we can see through points, projections, and tactical nuances and everything. Use what we got. When I play this way, I really view it as a defensive reactive mindset. Like I'm just trying to do the, the minimal amount of effort, expose myself to the least amount to create the maximum of value on the table in terms of scoreboard, making sure I'm always able to predict that I will be ahead or, you know, maintain a lead and be ahead um, for as long as I can, you know, throughout the game and have a five-turn plan to ultimately win the game. And it sounds like you have the same approach, but you have a very aggressive approach with it as opposed to my hide behind walls and figure that way to score out approach. I do this because I find the, the big mean people of 40k, like the Iron Hands and the Astra Militarum and the guns of the world and the brutal armies of the world, will really just kill me if I if I try to step to them on their game at all. So I instead try to play and create my own game with it. And much like what you're doing, but you're doing it in a way which I think fights them a little bit more than I do. How do you successfully fight them? So good question. Uh, I'd say that the most aggressive way I play is probably with Admech right now. So I'll answer the question with Admech um, as an example. So Iron Hands, very scary. Guard, very scary. However, Admech... Uh, turn one, if you don't go first, you get light cover and you also get plus one to your save. You're effectively mitigating two of their AP already at the start and both those armies don't ignore light cover. So straight away, you can already disrupt their output and when you have over 100 wounds of vehicles on the field, it's uh, they, they can't check you out. You know, you, you have some 
really cheap and effective vehicles. So as an example, a Dragoon is only 55 points for six wounds. And if you have a one-up save whilst also being neg one to hit natively and a five-up invuln now instead of a six-up, it is very, very difficult to shift. And unless they're bringing out melters, they're not getting you to your invuln. They, if they want their melters to come out to you, they have to actually really commit. And if they commit, they also lose the game because then you can actually get to them. So, you know, that's why I said sometimes it is a weird stat check in a way. And if you are running this many chickens like I am or vehicles in general, you know, you can't really hide them. You don't really want to. The, the biggest you know benefit they have is not really just their, their output or defense. It's also their movement. It's kind of a, a perfect triangle of, you know, what makes them really effective. So if you're limiting that part of them already, it's really bad. That being said, you know, the Battlestar generally do high turn one, so that way the only thing they're shooting is the Dragoons. And again, like I said, the Neg one to hit, plus one save, you know, oh, plus two save, I should say, really effectively, is really hard to, to get. They can definitely get the Battlestar, but they have to really, really, really commit an angle. And I love showing my opponent this is where you have to get to and agreeing with them where they need to be in order to see them. And once they agree on that, then I know. That's great. a great move for sportsmanship and also tactical advantage to know where to go. Yeah. Yeah, I do it all the time. I mean, I even put dice down for my future turn. And what I'll say is this is areas I can go in my future turns with these units. And I'll mark, you know, one dice number one and put another dice, you know, will be you know one. that just to scare them with that? No, not really. I think because a lot of people don't play at next. So they don't know what to expect. You know, they don't, they don't realize um, that, you know, you have... 30-inch effective movement turn one with um, Raiders, as an example. You know, that's that's really scary. I don't do it so much with the other factions, but what I will show people in with Salamanders, as an example, is a few different ways Born Protectors works at the start of the game by actually visually putting models on the field right. and then just going, here's a scenario, because that is a, arguably the strongest strategy in the game, yeah. <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, and coupled when they can also get, you know, one CP plus one to wound, one CP for plus one strength, double damage on sixes, you know, having six damage thunder hammers, wounding on twos into knights and all these other fun things that you can get. It's really uh, potent. All right. So we're kind of coming to a close on this episode. I want to wrap it up by actually summing it up with your army list. You're going to read it off top to bottom real quick and just kind of leave us off with what you've taken to first place at not one, but two super big events in the past couple weekends. And we'll get all into that in part two for patrons at AOW40K.com. If we're not seeing you there, I'll be sad, but I hope we do. Yeah, so my list was one thing I'm adopting right now, and I let, let's talk about my GT list, the singles tournament one, because that one, there, there's some slight variations, but that one there did get me 500 battle points out of 500. So it did... 500 out of well. 500. Yeah, it was a perfect score. That's insanity. <laughs> I don't know anybody who just like perfect scores it. Like it, maybe if you have passive secondaries at max score and you're like necrons yeah. or something, but that yeah, part two everybody <laughs> five hundred out of five hundred. Learn how. I'll tell you how. Yeah, uh, I had to really work for it. I won't say much more than that. We'll, we'll talk about that after. But uh, I've been running Mars mainly because there's a really good amount of double stacking you can do there uh, with buffs. As an example, we just mentioned plus one save like cover if you don't go first. Plot twist, I only went first once. So it worked out really uh, well in my favor uh, having that one there. Uh, so I started uh, in Mars. I had only two characters. One was a Marshal. 
who had exemplus eternity. So reroll hits and wounds of one in a six inch aura. I also then had a dominus. And this is a bit of a weird dominus. I had artisans. So uh, that was the holy order that allows me to have a unit within six fallback shoot and charge, um, which is very strong. And I'll talk more about why I picked that over some of the more popular ones later. Uh, and then I also gave him the red axe, which is a relic that gives him, it's kind of like the teeth of terror. Essentially it gives you an extra three attacks. It's AP five, two damage. So it's uh, really cool. Uh, for troops, I only had one troop unit, which was a mistake. Um, it was uh, five um, uh, Skutari Rangers with one plasma. Uh, caliber. I then had my elites, which was five infiltrators with some forward deploy and harassing. I had two units of 10 rust stalkers. Uh, one unit had the omniscient mask, which was a six inch aura exploding hits. There's a lot I can talk about that just alone. So we'll talk about that in the, uh, the following video. And we also had the other one with temper corpia, which was a fight last. All of these are running blades because Razors are absolutely terrible. So always run blades, everyone. Uh, AP3, strength five, you know, more than addition. It's just money. Uh, rounding out then, we had fast attack, which was my main slot for the arcs detachment. We had two units of four uh, Iron Strider Ballastari. All of them had Laz cannons. We had two units of three, us, uh, yeah, two units of three um, Sidonian Dragoons with Taser Lancers and also the Phosphor Gun that they have, which is now free. Uh, then I had two units of three Cerberus Raiders. Uh, so there are horses so I can pre-game move. They can move away when you get charged. There's a lot of different harassing things there. And then rounding it out, we had one Dune Crawler, just, just because I hate myself, I think, um, and uh, two Dune Robbers. We're going to learn about the, the hatred Dune Crawler. I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah. Um, Arguably, he did get me some value, but not in the way he should have ever done. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Thanks so much for coming on, Alex. It's been a pleasure talking to you, learning about how you view 40K. Everybody, if you found this episode fascinating, come on over to part two. Alex is going to jump on in and tell us all about Admech. I don't know anything about him, so it's going to be a learning episode for me. It's going to be a learning episode for all of you. 500 out of 500. AOW40K.com, everybody. I'll see you later. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. TheArtOfWar40K.com